Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post, and I'm very happy to be joined today by my good friend Rob Mahoney, uh, uh, NBA writer extraordinaire for uh, Sports Illustrated and SI.com, uh, who today wrote an excellent story on the Gasol brothers that when you get done with the podcast, you should go read, or better yet, just pause now and then go read it and then come back. So, Rob, how's it going? It's going well. I appreciate the plug. I appreciate the traffic. Now, hopefully, hopefully you get a few dozen clicks or so from this, but uh, um, I'm sure you're getting plenty more on the site. Um, so, so to set the scene for those of you who haven't read it yet, um, Robert, a long, excellent piece on the Gasol brothers and their relationship. And for people who don't know, Rob, how this stuff works, um, can you kind of just set the scene for how much legwork you had to put in just to set up the interview itself for this? Because I know you got the two of them together, which given one plays in the Easter Conference and one plays in the West, isn't uh, isn't the easiest thing to try to do. Yeah, yeah, it takes a little bit. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, with especially the kind of work that I do generally, is very basketball-focused. It's easy enough to get a guy at practice or a game or something like that. With, with something like this where I really, you know, part of kind of the purpose of the piece was I really wanted to get a sense of what Pow and Mark were like as brothers. And the only way to do that, in my mind, was to get them in the same place at the same time for as long as possible. Uh, so the legwork really started very shortly after the beginning of the season when this idea kind of came about uh, and just in terms of touching base with, with both of them and, and both of the teams and making sure that everybody was informed as to what was, you know, what I wanted to do and what was the best way to go about it. Uh, really, there was one date that, that made sense just because the Grizzlies and the Bulls only played twice this season. So unless it was going to happen all-star weekend when there are a million other things uh, pulling at their time. That's assuming that both of them are all-stars, which may or may not happen. We'll have to see how that goes. Um, it, there really was only one date on the calendar that made good sense in terms of something we could put out during the year. And so that was the December date that in Chicago uh, when the Grizzlies were in town. So it it definitely, you know, it didn't take a lot of convincing. I think both of them are, are pretty open guys in terms of that they really like each other and they're open to talking about their relationship and they were, they're really game for, for everything that I was throwing at them. It was just a matter of making sure the logistics lined up even for just that one interview. Yeah, which, I mean, for people who aren't in our business, more than half the battle is is generally getting the guys in a situation where you can talk to them, whether it's just getting time set up or figuring out where to do it or when to do it. Um, once you get guys talking, it, it pretty much everybody is pretty good about talking about stuff, especially if you, you know have an interesting angle you approach them with. They're generally... Um, interested in cooperating, but but it is it is really hard to try to set something up, especially when you know, like you said, you're dealing with a guy in the Eastern Conference and a guy in the Western Conference. He'll only play a couple times a year, and there might be a back to back involved, so you know you might not have much time. Um, so it it is pretty tricky. Now, um, you know, you said you want to get a sense of them as brothers. You know, after after spending this time reporting and writing the piece, you know, what sense did you get? I mean, I think. Part of the reason I was drawn to this idea in general is just kind of the idea of how adult siblings of any kind navigate growing, you know, growing up and growing older and how that changes their relationship and how it evolves it. Uh, and for them, I, you know, they're obviously an especially interesting case just because they're both, you know, elite basketball players, some of the best basketball players in the world who happen to be related and happen to have played in the same city and have had, you know, experiences in Memphis and they have all these through lines kind of, you know, tying them together. So, you know, 
having spent time with them a little a little bit of time with them and getting to know them a little bit both through talking to them and talking to you know basically anyone i could you know i could who was around them uh they what immediately stuck out to me and really is kind of a, a central point of the piece is just this dynamic of guys who are, are incredibly competitive even with each other but there's a very hard stopping point as to where that can influence their actual relationship and that these two guys can, can so clearly distinguish and separate uh, what matters to them and, and which is their relationship and their family lives and how they don't let that bleed over at all. And how, you know, just kind of how healthy that kind of worldview is and how rare it is. I think, you know, especially in a league where, you know, these guys have dedicated their, their lives to their craft and to becoming better basketball players, you know, throughout the league. And, and these two guys, especially, they're they're students of the game by all means, but that they're able to kind of create that definition in their relationship, and they're able to to really just be be themselves and be the exact same brothers they've always been uh, within the context of, of them hanging out together, having dinner together, or playing with the you know in their time away from the national team when when they're playing in Spain or that kind of thing. It's really just a remarkable thing to me. No, I mean, and in, in anybody who's spent time around Powell and Mark both know, knows how, you know, they're just pretty generally decent guys. And, um, you know, they're both they're both very interesting, um, thoughtful guys. You had some, you know, some neat anecdotes in the piece about, you know, how Powell kind of just, you know, pretend to have a reason to go over near some kids to talk to them at games. And, uh, you know, anybody who's interviewed Powell at a game, you know, usually thanks everyone for their time when they're done, which is uh, not a normal um, reaction from a player. Um, but I, there was there, and I, I want people to read the piece. So I don't want to spoil the whole thing, but I, I thought one very fascinating, um, anecdote from it was at the end, uh, or not at the end it, in the piece, you, you talked about how Powell was a big reason why Mark came to Memphis, uh, in the first place after he was traded, um, you know, his draft rights were traded from the Lakers to the Grizzlies, which is an anecdote I actually had never heard before. Um, and it, and it kind of fascinated me. So if you, if you don't mind, I I'd just kind of like you to walk through, um, how the process of getting Mark to actually agree to come play in Memphis came about. Cause I thought it was pretty fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, for those who who remember when Pau Gasol was traded, you know, the pieces that the Grizzlies got back in return, it was, you know, Javaris Crittenton, some, some first round picks, one that was going to be that season and one for a later season, I think a second round pick. And of course the draft rights to Mark, which, uh, when you talk to to Chris Wallace or the Grizzlies people now, they they talk you know tell you about how how important it was to get Mark's rights and that they thought highly of him and how well he was playing in Spain and in what would have you know his, what was his MVP season of the Spanish league at that point and how central it was to getting him to come to Memphis as soon as possible because they were just killed for that trade and it wasn't just the media you know Greg Popovich called for the NBA to have like a, a committee to review deals yeah he wanted he to get vetoed yeah he thought it was one of the worst trades of all time. Right. No. So it was, I mean, it was, there, there was an uproar. And so the idea that Memphis really had to have something to show for this deal beyond cap space and draft picks and, and maybe some young prospects and that Mark, as a guy who was a little bit older and a little bit more developed, could really help ease some of that tension. And so they went to work, you know, Chris Waltz went to work immediately in terms of talking with, with Mark's family and then later Mark about, okay, you know, this might be a, a good spot for you. You know, they were already familiar with the organization with how having been there. Uh, which helped, but eventually they reached a point where you know Mark w- was in demand in Europe, certainly, especially for some, from some of the bigger clubs in some of the the bigger leagues, not only in Spain but but across the continent. And so the Grizzlies reached a point where they really had to give him a competitive financial offer 
to bring him over. And for a guy who was selected, I think I think it was number forty-eight in this in the second round of the draft. Uh, that's that's a a bit of an ask. And so the, there was definitely some some trepidation on the part of Michael Heisley, the Grizzlies' former owner, to pay Mark essentially what they had paid Mike Conley, who's the number four pick in the draft the season prior. Uh, you know, just kind of wrapping his head around whether or not is is this guy really going to be worth it? And you have to remember that the last that a lot of people in Memphis had seen of Marcus Saul was when he was in high school, where he was recruited very lightly. He was, you know, I think the stories are already pretty well worn in terms of how how overweight he was. In terms of okay, there was this obvious skill and the shooting ability, and there's there's an awareness of the game that people appreciated. But I think a lot of people still had this image in their head of of Mark in high school and what that player was. And maybe he's not even an NBA prospect at all. Maybe he maybe he is only a second round pick and that kind of talent. And so there really had to be some convincing uh, in terms of how the Grizzlies were going to bring him over and whether or not Mark was going to be worth it. And and Heisley decided that the best way to kind of navigate that was to just call Powell, who the Grizzlies had traded you know months earlier, and ask him about about his brother and learn a little bit more. And so, as I mentioned in the piece, you know, Powell basically told uh, told Heisley that, that Mark had a chance to be better than he was, that he wasn't going to regret it, that there this was a move that the Grizzlies really needed to make. And you know, th- you know, for the Grizzlies' sake, thank goodness he did, because if if Mark had eventually, you know, slipped through the cracks or they had traded his rights somewhere else, you know, it obviously would have been a colossal mistake on their part. Yeah, no, that's why I wanted to, you to bring that up because I thought it was it was really fascinating. I I never realized that Powell actually made that call. And like you said, it was pretty weird to have a guy, you know, obviously Powell had spent a lot of time in Memphis and, you know, had a good relationship with Michael Heisley, the, the late owner of the team. But it was a rather unique um, a unique way for that trade, to for, for Mark to get there, given that they had just, you know, sent him across the country uh, not too long before. But, um, but yeah, so please go read uh, Rob's story. We usually plug stuff at the end, but um, it came out today and I thought it was terrific. So... Definitely go check it out. But but with that, I, I want to kind of transition into um, kind of the main, the you know, the, a lot of the stuff you normally do for for SI, um, you know, your, your your usual format called the fundamentals. And uh, I always enjoy reading Rob's stuff because it 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 explains the game in a in a thoughtful way, and it and it does so in a using a lot of technical points about how game, the game is played but in a way that people who might not you know be as as versed in the game can actually understand it so um I, I just wanted to ask you you know I know you wrote a lot about the Mavs being from Dallas you know where where did that writing style and that process come from in terms of how you kind of approach the way you cover the league it's probably tricky to say um I, I would say Primarily, just by reading, you know, all the great stuff that has been online, you know, since since I really started digging into the NBA a little deeper, which was probably around 2008, uh, and so at that point it was it was primarily blogs, you know, reading a lot of you know, Kevin Arnovitz when he was a Clipper blog, that kind of thing, just guys who were who were going the next step further in terms of what the analysis was, why these plays were working. Uh, there's just kind of an appeal to that that goes beyond you know, the, the very superficial surface level stuff that's that's fun and that, that I think everyone is kind of drawn into when you watch a basketball game. Sometimes you just kind of glaze over and it's you just get sucked into the momentum of it and, and the moves that the guys are making and that stuff's all great. But there really is something to, you know, a lot of analysts will tell you and a lot of guys who work for teams will tell you just watching off the ball, 
trying to get a sense of the bigger picture of what's going on in a particular sequence, just because there's, there's a whole world out there that, that not a lot of fans are seeing. And so with the fundamentals, we try to bring that stuff to them as much as possible in a way that, as you said, is, is as accessible as can be. There's always going to be a little bit of a barrier. Uh, it's going to always going to be a little bit of a, a nerdy, and, you know, really for the, for the basketball diehards uh, has that kind of appeal. But, but I think we, we try to do the best we can to bridge that gap and, and make it interesting. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I think that's a great tip uh, for anybody that is trying to learn. You know, if you're if you if you're just a basketball fan, then you know just watch a game and you can you can follow along just fine. But if you're trying to learn about how a team is doing something, you just want to watch it differently. Try to watch every possession without actually watching the ball, and just pick a guy. You know, pick a guy away from the ball and just follow him around. And I think I think people would be surprised to see how many different things happen in one. 24 second possession I mean 24 seconds isn't that long and you know teams just come down and run a pick and roll or two and, and run a play but I, I think you know along kind of like what you're saying Rob like I don't know how many fans would realize just how many actions go into one you know simple offensive set you know in the middle of a second quarter of a game no absolutely and you know this kind of thing tends to come up when I'm talking to, to friends or acquaintances or whoever about especially in the contrast between the NBA and NCAA basketball, where people, they still see the NBA as a one-on-one league, as a league where everybody is, is creating for themselves, where there's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of teamwork in terms of the applications of plays and things like that. I, to me, it's like hearing the world is flat. Like, you know, I, I don't know how you could watch an NBA game and come away with that conclusion just because, like you said, if you watch a guy, if you watch Clay Thompson just over the course of the game, you can even edit out every possession where he shoots. Just watch every screen he sets, watch how much he moves without the ball and how important that is and the effect that it has on the defense and how he's pulling the help defender just a foot or half a foot or just maybe even just a single you know, hesitation in terms of what the rotation is going to be and how that can influence how much space that Steph or Draymond or whoever else in the Warriors has on, on their driver, their shot. I mean, this stuff is all interconnected in, in such an interesting way. Uh, it's it's such a rich game, and I think that's what calls to to me in terms of the appeal, and probably to a lot of other people as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, the people the people who say that about college ball did just drive me crazy because you're not actually watching. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna sit there and say, you know, yeah, you know, in, in the pros, all they do is stand around and and play one on one and shoot. I mean, you're just not actually watching the games. I mean, if you go, you know, if you watch the team where you play in Dallas. You know, or you watch San Antonio, or you watch uh, Golden State, or, or I mean, hell, pretty much any team in the league. Um, they're con- guys are they're constantly running two and three different actions within the same possession, and all kinds of stuff that you know any team in college would just their heads would spin if they tried to do once, let alone um, possession after possession after possession, and um, and as as things go along. Now, I was in Cleveland the other night for the Warriors Cavs game. Um, I know you weren't there, but you, I know you watched. Um, there's been a lot of takeaways from that game over the last couple of days. Um, I wrote, I wrote after the game on Monday that, you know, I think it's fair to start wondering if LeBron's window is closing in terms of having a chance to win a title or multiple titles, not necessarily by anything he did or that the Cavs did, but simply because Golden State came out of nowhere and you know, has really kind of become a historic team potentially, you know, in the blink of an eye. And then today I wrote about Kevin Love and just how the the Cavaliers really aren't using him properly. 
Um, and that, you know, I'd like you to speak to both points, but I, I kind of like to start with Kevin Love first because I think it, I think it's a good, a good way for you to kind of analyze the team given your, your, um, your ability to break stuff down. So, um, when you watch the Cavs and you watch how they use Love specifically. Um, what what do you see that they could be doing that right now they aren't? It's it's frustrating with Love just because he's a guy whose game I've always appreciated a lot. And in Minnesota, in a lot of ways, you had a blueprint of what you can do to feature him, how you can use his various skills, and and really how to balance his game in, in a really efficient way. And he's the type of player who, if you're not willing to go to those lengths, if you're not going to go out of your way to make Kevin Love the best player that he can be for you, he's not going to be an effective player because he's going to be essentially a spot-up shooter, which he's good at but not great at, and he's going to be a problem on the defensive end, as we've now seen in an infinite number of Vine loops. And so you know, he, this is this is kind of what confounds me about the Cavaliers situation is that there are role players who have really strange games that don't quite fit, and you see coaches that, that just don't really want to build everything they do around them. But Love is a guy who at least with the Cavaliers, should be important enough to really put some consideration and really put some effort into how can we use this guy best? Because LeBron's game is, is, is really simple in the fact that he has so many accessible elements, maybe fewer now that he's, he's slowed down just a little bit, that he's not quite as explosive as he used to be. But he's always going to have the back-down ability, the vision. He's always going to be potent in some of the similar ways that are more easily accessible in terms of an isolation, as will Kyrie Irving. Love is a guy who you really kind of need the system of movement and, and the way to navigate it in terms of put him at the elbow, put him in motion. Look at some of the plays that, that Rick Adelman and the Wolves were using in order to make him a more effective player because it's not really rocket science to me. It's a, a lot of the same things where, you know, getting a guy a screen before he exit, you know, getting the ball handler a screen before he catches the ball, before he goes into the pick and roll, and how all those little movements kind of affect each other and they all kind of feed into the momentum of the play and the space that the ball handler will have in the pick and roll. You can do the same things in terms of having a guy like Kevin Love and the way you move him around the floor and the the angles that you're giving him and the screens you're giving him before he even makes the catch and what that can feed into in terms of dribble handoff type action or, or any, you know, there's a wide variety of ways that you could use a player like him. And so it's not really as simple as, Oh, he needs to take more threes and fewer long twos, or he needs to post up more or he needs to do any more of this one thing. It's just that's a really versatile player with an interesting package of, of attributes and skills that you could put to really effective use. And I'm sure that the Cavs have considered some, and I wonder almost if it's kind of a, a paralysis in terms of, okay, we have these three stars, uh, we don't want to overthink this, or, or maybe they tried to implement a little bit too much of everything, but you see moments, and you saw moments especially at the beginning of this season, where they started to seem to get it a little bit in terms of how can we use love and really how much should we use love within our offense. I, I don't know that they've really reached that balance a lot lately, and it certainly wasn't apparent in that Warriors game. Well, and what was the difference early in the season, Rob? Kyrie wasn't there, right? I mean, then it was LeBron and Love, and Love was operating as the second option, and so they were featuring him. And then, you know, lo and behold, when you feature him, he puts up pretty good numbers, and he can do a lot of stuff. Um, you know, you mentioned the way he was used in Minnesota – I've always thought that Kevin's game reminded me, uh, at least offensively, he was a better defense. This guy was a better defensive player, but you know, Rick Adelman was obviously the coach of those great Kings teams, and the way when you watch when you watched how they used Love in Minnesota, they did a lot of the same things with him that Kev, Chris Webber used to do with the Kings on those great Kings teams, and 
they have a lot of the same skill sets. They're both they're both terrific passers. Love can handle the ball a little bit, just like Weber, Weber could. Um, he's a better shooter than Weber, but um, you know you saw. I mean, this is a guy that put up twenty six and thirteen in multiple seasons. Um, you know, I, I've I've been kind of amused at the way things have played out over the last year and a half. I mean, Kevin Love went from being a guy that. You know, every team in the league was kind of checking in on Minnesota, waiting to see if they're going to trade him, anxious to try to get him out of there, um, out of an incredibly dysfunctional situation. And now, you know, less than two years later, after he really has, like you said, I mean, when I talked to Kevin Love last week, he said that his job on the Cavaliers is to do, quote, the dirty things or the, and or the dirty work and to pick his spots on the team. To your point, if that's how you're going to use Kevin Love, which is what I wrote in my piece today, there's no point in having Kevin Love on your team because you're paying him max salary, max salary money to do stuff that he's not good at anyway, and you're just not using him for the things that he is good at. Um, you know, I, I other people have said this. You just did too. I don't understand why they don't run any sets for him out of the high post. You know, like you said, they basically just use him as a spot-up shooter, and he, that kind of take that takes away from his ability to get to the offensive glass, which he was excellent at. I mean, it, they really just have kind of marginalized them. And, I, and I, I, I'm curious about this other point. You mentioned how LeBron has slowed down a little bit, um, though he's still obviously a terrific player. I think that the biggest problem that they have is that they're essentially trying to play three power forwards in Tristan Thompson, LeBron, and, and Kevin. And their best lineups are when, if they go small, they play LeBron at power forward and Tristan at center because Love isn't good enough to guard fives on defense um and that that to me is a pretty huge problem too because if you're you know if you're paying kevin love max money and he doesn't fit in what you know if you're trying to play a team like golden state where your best lineup might be then i would say that's a pretty significant problem for you trying to figure out what to do with your roster going forward it definitely is and it's one that you know it's hard to say without knowing a little bit more of the specifics of of kind of where lebron is and how he approaches what position he wants to play uh, but it always seemed in Miami that that was something he had to be talked into a little bit. It was something that Shane Battier had to help mediate a lot by picking up, uh, you know, some of the, the the tweener assignments and really bodying up some of the bigger guys and that kind of thing. And so I don't know whether LeBron ultimately sees himself long term as playing power forward, but I think that there's no question at this stage of his career that it's the best position for him. It's where his speed can be as much of a weapon as anything. It's where you know he he won't be penalized quite as much for the things that he isn't doing quite as well right now. Uh, but I mean, it's tricky in that way. Just like you said, with, with Tristan Thompson and Kevin Love and finding the balance with those two guys alone and, and Timothy Mozgov when he is effective and when he is useful for them, which was, you know, it's been a little bit more sporadic this season than I think I and, and maybe some other people would have expected. But, the, you know, it's, it's not an easy lineup to manage. And I don't mean to, to point at, at, you know, David Blatt or anyone with the Cavs and say, oh my gosh, this is so simple. Why haven't you figured this out? Uh, just because the rotation is tricky and it, it's going to be challenging and the ego's there and, you know, finding time and touches and, and, and the occasion for everything is, is a challenge. But at the same time, I mean, when you're a team that's already that good and, and, you know, for all that we've said about the Cavs so far, this is ultimately a top five offense and a team that in a lot of seasons, seasons in NBA history would have been probably an easy champion. Uh, they just happen to have the misfortune of, of being, you know, poised to run up against two teams that are playing at a historic rate, and both of which have excellent defenses that will pick apart anything that's that's too simplistic. And so that's kind of what we're seeing in, in some of these matchups so far, 
in terms of these long spells of the Cavs gone where they just can't score enough against high-level defenses. Yeah, no, totally. And you're you're 100% right about their roster. I mean, they have a lot of talent on their roster, but it is a lot of oddly fitting talent. It's a lot of guys that it's a lot of guys that it's hard to figure out the right mix. And I think the biggest issue is when you go back and look at that big 3 that LeBron had in Miami. You know, there were some issues with, you know, figuring out how to share the ball between Dwayne Dwayne Wade and LeBron, but those guys all fit pretty well on the court in terms of, you know, where they played and how they could be used. And, you know, you could find ways to make them work. The problem with Cleveland's group is that Kyrie is a one is a one-side player. He doesn't play any defense. He's an offense-first guy who needs the ball. And Kevin Love is basically the same thing. Another guy that's an offensive player that's a one-side guy that doesn't play much defense and needs the ball. So if you're trying to figure out how to balance that, it is a pretty tough situation for David Blatt because there there isn't – there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of wiggle room to try to figure out the best way to make that all work because LeBron needs the ball too, and you know sure there's going to be nights like I was at the game in Dallas. Um, I guess it was last week when uh, those three guys scored fifteen all fifteen points in overtime, and you know you could have bursts where they're all getting the ball and they can just kind of overwhelm teams, but like you said when they're playing teams like the Spurs or the Warriors, these elite teams that can kind of suss out when a team isn't operating on at peak efficiency and kind of take them out, it's going to be really tough for them to make that work. I mean, it's the blessing of having, having so many good players and so much talent on your roster. I, I, you know, I I don't truthfully know all how, how to suss out all of their problems. And I think it may be one of those cases where they just may not have the ability to put their best offensive lineups and their best defensive lineups into the same package. And they might have some problems bridging that, but they have time to work with. They're going to have some, some remaining matchups against high quality teams. They have an Eastern conference pool. That's very accommodating in terms of what their playoff picture is going to look like. Uh, and, and, you know, really in terms of, in terms of that and, and how easy it seems that their path is going to be through the East, you have to account for the fact that, you know, if, if either the Spurs or the Warriors, have any kind of slip along the way if they suffer any kind of injury along the way this thing is open in a very different in a very different sense it's just as those teams match up right now and and the Cavs do match up a little bit better against the Spurs and the Warriors I think uh but the Warriors especially they've figured out in, in a very damaging way exactly how to get what they want on offense and sometimes those shots are going to go and sometimes they're not and guys are going to have off nights and that kind of thing but ultimately, I think Cleveland is the one who has to do a lot of adjusting in terms of how they're going to play that potential series if it does happen. Um, and they're going to have a little bit of time to work with in terms of figuring that out. And I, I agree about the Spurs. I think the Spurs might actually be the best team of the three overall. But, you know, as, as you know, a lot of times in the NBA, it's about matchups. And the, the benefit that the Spurs give the Cavs is that the Cavs can go big against the Spurs because of the way their roster is constructed, which would allow them to maybe get you know, that combination of, of Tristan, Kevin, and, and LeBron all out there at the same time. Um, now, it's Wednesday afternoon. I'm going to go watch the, the Warriors play the Bulls in a little while, but obviously the game that everybody's had circled on the calendar for a while is this game Monday night in Oakland between the Warriors and the Spurs. Um, the first time these two teams have played, they're both on pace to win 70 games, which is remarkable. I think it's the only time in... NBA history that that's been the case that there's two teams on that kind of pace this late in the season though I could be wrong about that um but from your standpoint Rob you know when the, when the Spurs went and signed LaMarcus Aldridge this summer 
every you know obviously he's a heck of a player. Does a great signing for them, and people immediately started to look ahead to this matchup, which you know unfortunately we didn't get to see last year when the Spurs lost in the first round to the to the Clippers in a terrific series, um, and there was a lot of of um, interest in seeing how these two teams are going to match up, given how much success Golden State has had going small, and how the Spurs have kind of gone the other way now and are you know are almost intentionally going big kind of in a you know in reverse of what a lot of the trends around the league have been lately so you know as as we approach that game you know how do you see these two teams matching up and what what things are you going to be looking for um you know even though it is just one game in mid-January to kind of see how how these two teams shape up as we you know we get a little bit closer to the playoffs yeah, I mean, it's it's appointment viewing for NBA fans. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, the things that, that I want to keep a close eye on in that game, as you mentioned, LaMarcus Aldridge's place in this matchup. And in terms of, you know, defensively, LaMarcus is a really good defender when he's engaged. And he's been engaged for them for, for most of the season. I think he's done a very fine job on that end. But the Warriors are just a very different, they play a very different game in terms of the geometry, in terms of how much they can space you out, in terms of how, in terms of how much ground you have to cover. And so I want to see a little bit about how he holds up there and, and what they do with him and how exactly they decide to to account for the possibility of, of guys like Steph pulling up as they come around the screen and what they want to do with that in terms of how they cover it. And at the same time, at the other end of the court, LaMarcus with how, how he decides to go about when he gets switches, how effective is he going to be posting up those smaller guys? How effective is Draymond Green going to be in stopping him in those one-on-one situations on the block? And And kind of the same thing with Tim Duncan in terms of Duncan has been such a great defensive player for a long time. He's, you know, one of the best defenders in the NBA by and large this season. But this is a series and a matchup, sorry, a matchup and a potential series where you could see maybe his age showing a little bit. You could see maybe some of his lack of mobility showing a little bit. Just the unique strains that the Warriors place on opposing defenses. I'm, I'm very curious at how those pull on what the Spurs have, just given the fact that the Spurs are so good on that and they execute so well. They're so consistent, and they're all they're all so tightly uh, arranged, and, and they really do move on a string in terms of the rotations. But I mean, the Warriors, just given how unique of a challenge that is, I'm, I'm curious to see how they hold up. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's just a fascinating contrast. I, from for me, I'm very curious to see what the Spurs do with Tony Parker. Um, there's not really an obvious place to hide him, and you know they have Danny Green and and Kawhi Leonard to throw at two of their three guys, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's Draymond or Clay and Steph, however you, you want to approach it. But you have to find somewhere to hide Tony. And, you know, I'm kind of curious to see what they do with that. And at the other end, you know, I'm curious. You know, last year in the finals, we saw that Golden State had a little bit of trouble when Cleveland could kind of, you know, pound the ball and kind of use their size inside to beat them up. And that's something that we saw work a bit against Memphis, too. Not that there's an, there's any surefire where to beat this Warriors team because they obviously are a terrific group, but do you think that that might be the key to beating them is having enough mobile size that you can you can both get on the glass and then at least somewhat be able to match their mobility at the other end? You know, obviously trying to stay with guys like Draymond and Harrison Barnes when they go small with big guys is pretty difficult, but. Um, you know, do you think that's kind of the, the trick to maybe beating them? Or, or if not, what do you think it is? I mean, uh, yeah, first of all, I mean, I don't think there's any trick or else we would probably know it already. You know, this, 
they're so hard to stop. They're so hard to account for in part because, as we've described, they're so different from even what a lot of the, the rest of the teams in the league are doing, even the ones who do go small and the ones who do try to play fast and do try to shoot a lot of threes. The talent that the Warriors have is, is such a, a strange challenge. And so, as you mentioned, like I don't think going small against them is is generally the answer. You know, the Spurs are, are a different team in that way because they have some different personnel and the possibilities that that creates. But for a lot of the teams that try to go small against the Warriors, it just ends up biting them because they're not quite as used to playing that style. They get, you know, cross matches that don't quite work out in terms of their defensive positioning. They, they just seem a little out of sorts, whereas the Warriors are always going to be comfortable playing that way. And so, yeah, if you have the personnel and the big guys to be mobile defensively while trying to have a presence on the offensive glass and, and in the post, like the Cavs did in spots in that finals, I think you can certainly try that. You can certainly roll that out. The tricky thing with the Spurs is that San Antonio, by and large, is not a team that invests a lot of its resources in getting offensive rebounds, in part because, like so many other teams in the league, they want to invest in getting back in transition. And so maintaining that balance is always going to be a challenge when the Warriors can flip the ball so quickly up the other way. You know, They have so many ball handlers. They, they're so great with, with head-to-head passes and you know going into their transition game so quickly. And then once they do, they don't have to get all the way to the rim because they have so many capable three-point shooters. And so... The way San Antonio navigates that balance between how much do we, you know, how much and who do we want to be offensive rebounding to, to take to best take advantage of our size, and at the same time, how do we get back when, you know, Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard are, are great defenders in terms of their ability to get back and kind of stop breaks one on, you know, one on one on three or two on one or you know these unfavorable situations, but guys like Tony Parker and Patty Mills, guys who who may potentially be positioned at the top of the key who are running to get back to stop a fast break, it's going to be a tough spot for them. You really need to give those guys help. So, you know, how Greg Popovich and the Warriors decide to to balance all that is is going to be an important part of that matchup. Well, and and the, and the Warriors are so difficult in that too because when they get in a in a fast break situation, I mean, especially Clay and Steph, I mean, they're they're just hunting threes all over the place and that that's what makes that even tougher. A lot of teams, it's like, "All right, you get back, you stop the ball going to the rim and you you kind of, you know, rotate out and figure it out." But against Golden State, you know, especially when Draymond gets the ball and starts charging up the court, you know, Steph and Clay are just flying around looking for the first open three they could get, and that makes that makes that process even tougher um, when when you are trying to, to calculate whether you should go for the offensive boards or you should just try to get back and keep them from from getting off. And and speaking of Draymond, I, I, I want to ask you one last thing about this before we move off. You know, probably the most fascinating thing for me from a, a one-on-one standpoint in that game is to figure out where – you play Kawhi Leonard, um, you know, probably the best defensive player in the league at this point, at least in my opinion. Him and Draymond are, are the top two guys, I think. And certainly among wings, I think Kawhi has established himself as the top guy. Um, you know, when you've got Clay and Steph and Draymond on that team, what do you think – is there is there an optimal matchup that if you were Greg Popovich, you would try to have him on the most? I mean, I'm sure he's going to get different spots throughout the series or throughout that game and throughout – a potential series in the spring, but um, do you think there's a, a, a guy that they should try to focus on taking out um, more than the others, or or is it strictly, you know, as you go along, you just put him from guy to guy and try to mix things up and make things as uh, as confusing for Golden State as possible? I think it's probably going to be the latter, and, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see a lot of, you know, Pop's A material in terms of what matchups he wants, in terms of what he wants to do exactly defensively in these regular season games is just based on his track record. You wouldn't expect it. Um, at the same time, I, you know, I think, I mean, Kawhi is such, 
such an impactful player and so preventative and so restrictive in terms of what he does to, to opposing players' movements in terms of the shots that they can take that you, you would at least want to see him on Steph just, just to see what kind of effect that would have. Where that ties in, though, is I think that the Spurs, as much as anything in these regular season games, are going to want to look at what they're able to get offensively and how much they have to rely on Kawhi to get it. Just because tracking and trailing Steph for, for long stretches of a game is not not great work. It's not particularly fun. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> no, it's, I wouldn't you know, say it is. <laughs> it, no, it wears you out pretty quickly. And with as important as Kawhi has been for them offensively this year, and especially against a team like the Warriors who are going to make them work so much, you know, every every possession that you can get by going to LaMarcus or by working different matchups or by, you know, just manipulating things in a slightly different way are going to be advantageous in that it frees up Kawhi for just a couple more possessions or a couple more minutes in whatever high leverage matchup they decide to put him in. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly curious to see how he does with Steph. I'm sure he'll see time on clay. Frankly, in this regular season game, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Spurs just throw up their hands and just go with kind of the default matchups just to see how they work out and see how they can handle them. Uh, just because, you know, guys like Tony Parker and Patty Mills are not particularly good defenders, but they can be competitive on the right night and they have a lot of help behind them. And so maybe, maybe we'll see just them play this thing straight. But, you know, there's no question over the course of a playoff series, those matchups will be moved around. Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard will both spend a lot of time, I would imagine, on some combination of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. Finding that balance is, is always going to be a little precarious just because the Warriors can burn you so quickly. But, you know, you would you would trust the Spurs and Pop to figure that out. It would be pretty – it would be very Popovich-like, and, and frankly, you wouldn't surprise me that much if they do just start the game on Monday with Kawhi Leonard guarding Harrison Barnes, right? And just go, we're just going to go one through five. We'll have LaMarcus guard Draymond, and we're just not – we're not going to even show anything. And, you know, we'll just let you guys play. And like you said, you know, maybe we can – you know, see how Tony might do in a series, and you know, I'm sure. I, I doubt that. I doubt they'll go to that extreme. But you know, like you said earlier, I I have a feeling we're not going to see a lot of pops um, a one material against the against the Warriors. But you, you know, th- there's no question that those two teams have been eyeing each other for months now, and it it, it really is going to be. It really is going to be something to watch on Monday, and I'm I just all I want from this season. I think we even talked about this when I saw you last week. All I want from this season is for them to play in a playoff series. I mean, no offense to the Thunder or the Clippers or the Cavs or some of the other really good teams in the league, but you know, it, it like you said earlier, most seasons Cleveland would be the best team in the league, and probably by a decent margin. You could make the same case for Oklahoma City too, but given how good these two teams have been. It just would be it just would be really fun from a basketball standpoint to get the chance to see them go at it in the Western Conference Finals, hopefully with everybody healthy in May and June, and just see see how it played out from there. No, yeah, you know what? I think we're I think we're owed it as basketball fans just to see how how all that will will come to balance. And you know, I don't think it's even a matter of months in terms of what these teams have been kind of eyeing each other and measuring each other up. You know, the Warriors were looking at this last year and, and kind of gauging how they were going to be able to get past San Antonio and what it was going to take and what the matchups were going to look like. And when that fell out, you know, fell out of the realm of possibility when the Spurs lost in the playoffs, you know, we all kind of lost that, you know, that, that potential matchup and, and what could have been a really interesting series. And so if it misses out again, it'll have to be for a really good reason. You would think that that would mean that a team like the Thunder is playing really well or a team like the Clippers or the Rockets or somebody figures it out in a big way. And maybe that'll be interesting in its own, in its own sense. But 
you know, I, I think as a basketball fan, seeing how these teams have played so far this season, we'd be crazy not to want to see them over seven games tinker and toy and, and poke at each other and figure out what works uh, just, just in terms of the strategy of that and all that would go into it. Yeah, it would be great. Now, speaking of a tinkerer, um, let, let's talk about the team in your backyard, uh, the Dallas Mavericks. And I, I know we talked about this the other day, and I'm sure you've written about it plenty in the past, but um, what is it like for you as a guy – you know, who's a you know who's a basketball junkie and really studies this stuff to watch what Rick Carlisle does on a daily basis and frankly a year by year basis with you know this Mavs roster where you have Dirk Nowitzki and then you just have this rotating cast of vagabonds for the most part from all over the place that you know year after year they they either get guys that are coming off injury or they pick guys up off trades or they. You know they sign. You know they sign these undervalued assets from all over the place. After they strike out with you know the top targets, they they go after, and then every year you know Rick has them winning forty five or fifty games with an efficient offense, and he's making a defense work despite the fact that Dirk is you know obviously up there in years and not that mobile anymore. Um, it, it's got to be for you as a basketball fan. It, it's really got to be fun to watch to watch Rick work on a daily basis and, and kind of put together you know, these effective Frankenstein lineups, you know, game after game after game. It really is. And, and really year after year after year, just because, I mean, one of, one of the fascinating things about being on the media side of this now, and, and especially in the preseason where you're projecting and you're looking at rosters and you're saying, okay, which of these teams are, are really going to be good and where are they going to, they, where are they going to land in terms of offensive and defensive efficiency and, and who are the real contenders? And it's, you know, I, I grew up in the Dallas area watching the Mavericks and watching Dirk. I, I covered that, you know, the team as part of the True Network for, for a number of years. And so I saw a lot of the Rick Carlisle era, you know, coming off of, off of the Avery Johnson era. And so sometimes I wonder if it's just like, okay, I think very highly of this team. I think they're going to figure it out because they always do. But am I too close to it? Am I thinking that, that this is going to be, you know, kind of a test that's beyond Rick Carlisle's abilities and beyond Dirk Nowitzki's abilities. And year after year, they showed that there, that may not be out there. There may not be a, a collection of players, a collection of talent that's, you know, that this living legend and a player and that one of the best coaches in the league can't drag to competitiveness. And they're not always going to be, you know, in the upper echelons and they're not always going to be in the championship conversation. I don't think they really are this year at all. But just the fact that what they're able to get, as you said, out of a group of, of guys who are signed on, on one year or two year, or brought on the end of their deals, who are, who are traded, who are picked up off the scrap heap, uh, all the pieces that they're able to cobble together, it's, it's baffling, you know, how much they're able to get out of what should be so little. And, you know, this is a group of, of injured players. This is a group that's incredibly light on the wings that had, you know, a center that they got, a starting center they got basically for free reserves that they picked up off the scrap heap, a point guard that, you know, didn't want to be in Brooklyn anymore and that Brooklyn wanted as far away from its own team as possible. And, you know, maybe that's a whole, a whole nother issue, but you know, just how, how, how shaky that infrastructure should be and how effective it is in actuality can only be a testament to how good Rick Carlisle is at his job. And, you know, obviously the Mavs agree given the length and, and the uh, significance of the extension that they gave him this season. No, I mean, they're, I mean, they're playing Darren Williams, J.J. Barea, and Ray Felton as really their three 
you know, main guards at this point with, you know, Wes Matthews playing on the wing with, with Chandler Parsons. Both of those guys are coming off injuries. You know, somehow he's got Ray Felton playing well again. Um, you know, it, it, it is just kind of an unbelievable. I mean, he's got Zaza Pajulia averaging like 11 and 11 a game. Um, you know, it, it really is it really is a remarkable uh, situation. But part of the reason that the, the Mavericks are in this situation is, like you know, and we, we did talk about this last week when we had lunch, but um, it is kind of weird that, you know, Dallas has, you know, a strong owner in Mark Cuban. They've got a great coach in Rick Carlisle. They've got Dirk Nowitzki, one of the nicest superstars ever to play in the history of the league. A, a guy everyone who's ever played with him says, you know, one of the most fun guys you could play with in the league. I know Darren Williams was going on and on about that just the other day about how he wished it happened sooner, and Dirk is great. And, um, you know, you just you never hear a bad word about any of them, really. And yet, year after year, they've gone into free agency ever since they won the title. You know, Mark Cuban got criticized for it at the time, but it, it was probably the smart move from a, a – you know, a, a long-term competitiveness standpoint to not lock himself into that championship core that they had, which was kind of a, you know, kind of a flash in the pan, everything coming together at one situation. And, you know, they've chased after a bunch of stars and it just hasn't, they haven't been able to get that guy to come join them. Like, you know, Dwight Howard goes to Houston and some other guys have changed teams and they haven't, they haven't been able to get that guy. And, do you do you think that it's really just a matter of of circumstance and luck that that hasn't happened, or do you think that there's been something in Dallas's approach or something about whether it's the market or the franchise or something that just hasn't been the right combination that should attract a free agent free agent to come there? I mean, I think the best answer that I could give would be some of all of the above, just in terms of you know their approach during those years, especially. You know, it was a home run swing. It was okay. We're looking at these specific guys, whether it's Darren Williams or Chris Paul or Dwight Howard or LeBron James or whoever they thought they had a chance with. Uh, some of those guys weren't as interested as I think they may have imagined them to be. You know, Chris Paul being one example, where he basically resigns with the Clippers at midnight. That's done, and now he's off the table. Uh, and so, you know, that puts a team like the Mavs, who are kind of waiting around for those possibilities in a really tricky position just because they wanted to be the team, whether it was, you know, I think the Spurs are kind of an interesting analog just because what they've done, what the Spurs have done for Tim Duncan's career is what the Mavs wanted to do for Dirk Nowitzki's career. They wanted to get the next star to usher in. They wanted to get the LaMarcus Aldridge or the Kawhi Leonard. The difference is that Kawhi Leonard getting him at where he was in the draft is an incredible accomplishment and a testament to how good the Spurs are in terms of their drafting process. The Mavs really haven't been as invested or as nearly as effective in terms of the players that they've been picking at the range where they've been selecting. Uh, they've really been kind of cavalier in terms of, okay, we're going to trade down out of a couple slots. We're going to trade out of this year's draft. We're going to try to open up as much cap space as possible because they were working with a little bit of a, a tightrope in terms of, okay, how are we going to fit in a potential max salary for a guy uh, like Dwight Howard or like Chris Paul or whoever it was. So you know, there was always going to be a risk there and a pretty significant one, especially when the guys you know choose to sign elsewhere. Um, but ultimately, I mean, they didn't get those guys, but I would say that the Mavs are, are one of the most accomplished front offices in the league in terms of executing backup plans for just the reason, reasons uh, we described and talking about how effective Rick Carlisle has been. You know, these aren't great, uh, flawless teams by any means, but they find the right kinds of guys who can emphasize their strengths and who can work in what Rick wants to do. 
you know, take a player like Monte Ellis and how much the Mavs were able to get out of him. There's always going to be a ceiling when you play with a player like Monte because of his defensive uh, flaws, because of the fact that he needs the ball in his hands, because of the fact that until he came to Dallas, he wasn't an effective three-point shooter. And even when he was there, it was really only from the corners. Uh, but you take that guy and you put him in Rick Carlisle's system, and he's going to take a lot out of out of what Monte can do to create for an offense. And so they've done such a stellar job of, of kind of recovering from those from those bouts and you know taking pieces and, and, and moving them along when they don't quite work in the right way finding guys on on the bargain bin whether it's brandon wright or, or vince carter when he was so effective in dallas for really cheap and affordable contracts that will work and fit for them it's hard to blame them for swinging for the one thing that everybody in the nba wants which is the next superstar in line and and really they got you know they finally got some guys to bite on their max offers this summer. It just happened that one of them decided to change his mind. And so I, I don't know how good the Mavs would have been with DeAndre Jordan. Uh, it would have been a franchise changing move in a lot of ways, but ultimately they finally got a guy. It just, you know, it was a little bit before the ink had dried on the paper. Yeah, no, totally. And, and it, it would be kind of fascinating to see what the team would look like. Cause a lot of, you know, they wouldn't have Zaza Pachulia and they wouldn't have some of these other guys, but they would have a young, you know, a, a pretty young, you know, either in his prime or entering his prime big that they could, um, you know, they could kind of grow with, and, and it would be interesting to see what they do. Now, I'm, I've got the Mavs salary sheet up here, and it, it they are in, they are kind of in that position again. You know, so Dirk's almost certainly going to opt into his contract, you would think. So um, between him and Wesley Matthews and a couple other guys they have under contract, they got about $36 million or so um, among, you know, five or six guys under contract. So, you know they're going to have over fifty million, and depending on where the cap ends up, could be close to sixty million in cap space. Um, with that in mind, you know what do you think they try to do this summer? Especially given, you know, outside of Kevin Durant, there's not a lot of guys that are really game changing free agents on the market. There's guys like Mike Conley and Demar Derozan and Al Horford, um, Nicholas Batum, all very good players, but not, you know, not the kind of franchise star you know, franchise-changing player that Dallas has really coveted in the past. So, you know, what do you see as a possible route for them this summer when they're clearly going to spend a lot of money um, just because they have it? And 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 what do you think, you know, maybe, I guess maybe what do you think they might do? And if it was you, what, do you, what would you do if you were them? Well, I think the one advantage that they have over a lot of teams out there is that Supposing that they're able to convince Chandler Parsons to come back, you know, I'm assuming he's going to opt out of the last year of his deal, uh, just because of all the incredible amount of money that's going to be out there. Assuming that they can bring him back, they have their wing position kind of set between he and Wesley Matthews. Uh, if if the Mavs like the progress they've seen in terms of both of those guys' pretty significant injuries and surgeries, and you know. W- both of them have come on a little better lately, and it's going to be incremental over the course of the year in terms of the Mavs kind of like that pairing long term. But otherwise, as you know, Kevin Durant is, is so good, and so many teams are going to be after him. But otherwise, the wing crop in this year's free agent class is, is not very impressive. And it's, it's not very, it's, not, it's certainly not going to be accommodating to the number of teams that have cap space and are gunning after two way wing players, which there just aren't that many of. And so, you know, between Dirk and those two, you know, I think they're going to be looking big first and foremost just because the Mavs, I imagine, trust in their ability to cobble together a competent point, you know, 48 competent point guard minutes a little more than they do 48 competent big man minutes. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see if they kind of 
kick the tires and explore their options in terms of getting a guy like Dwight. If, you know, depending on what happens between him and the Rockets, and you know, he also has a player option for next season, whether he decides to exercise it or not. Uh, Joakim Noah is certainly a name that, you know, his, his recent injury and, and you know, his uh, absence from the Bulls lineup, they'll have to, to kind of see and evaluate that, but maybe a name that could interest them. Um, I wouldn't be totally shocked if, if maybe they, they took a chance on someone a little bit a little bit younger or maybe someone on a team that is going to be in a little bit more of a salary pinch, a guy like, say, Festus Azili, for example, who could fit what they do, you know, who could really be a good piece for them defensively and a good rebounder, uh, maybe not the best hands in terms of a guy you want as a piece in Rick Carlisle's offense, but who, just because of where he is in the Warriors' pecking order and how many commitments they're going to have to make to other guys, Maybe he's gettable as a restricted free agent. So, you know, the Mavs are going to have a lot of pieces to play with. As you said, they're going to have some some cap room, uh, as will a lot of teams in the NBA. But they're one of the teams that also I wouldn't be surprised at all if they're really on the second or third wave of that in terms of they may wait out or, or at least they may make runs at guys. And if they prove unsuccessful, they're going to be right there in terms of calling every team in the league who's looking to unload uh, that veteran guy who maybe isn't quite what they had in mind for, for whatever stage their, their franchise happens to be in. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the guys in Brooklyn come to mind, like Brook Lopez and Thaddeus Young, guys and teams who are in that position where maybe you could get them and fit them into your cap space without giving up too much in terms of assets if you play your cards right and if you wait them out at the right time. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think big is going to be where they're going to focus um, I don't know what exactly the number's going to be, but I'd be very, very surprised if Darren Williams played anywhere else next year. Um, he has a player option. I expect him to opt out. Um, I'm guessing he probably gets in the neighborhood of 10 or 12 a year for a few years, and he, he stays in Dallas. Um, he's very happy there. Um, from there, I, I'd be I'd be really surprised if he went somewhere else. But um, one guy you haven't mentioned, you didn't mention among all those bigs, and uh, of them, I, I really am intrigued by the Joakim Noah mentioned there I hadn't thought of him for Dallas but he he would be pretty fascinating there he'd make a lot of sense for what they do offensively in terms of moving the ball around um you know I and I you know I think he'd be a very interesting fit there um but uh, one name you did not mention that's come up a lot with Dallas is Hassan Whiteside um you know a guy that obviously is at putting up some big numbers in Miami got a, a very interesting personality to put it lightly um has been kind of a a unique um a unique personality in the league and a, a very unique backstory, um, and he's a guy that's been linked to the heat, to the to the Mavs a lot because he's he's fairly young, um, he's he's big and athletic, and and he you know he's a guy that they could maybe maybe get from Miami who is going to be in kind of a, a difficult spot to try to re-sign all their guys. Um, it, do you what do you think of the possibility of them chasing him and? I would. I have a feeling I'd know the answer to this, but from a from an analyst standpoint, how terrified would you be to give him a very large or near max contract for multiple years to have him come play for your team? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Mavs are interested on some level. I, I think every team in the NBA would be, just because, like you said, there are some question marks in terms of how he's going to fit into your team, how his personality is going to fit into your team in terms of what his work ethic is going to be like going forward in terms of how much he's going to be dialed in into exactly what you want to be doing as, you know, as a group. Uh, but the talent is there. The shot blocking is certainly there. One of the best rebounders in the NBA, uh, an incredible alley-oop finisher. 
which is great if you have the pieces to work around. And in some sense, the, the Mavs do. You know, guys like Chandler Parsons, for example, are really good when they can work off of a guy who can finish finish a lob very well. So you could see him fitting in in Dallas. Um, I I don't know. Um, he he strikes me as the kind of piece that would intrigue them in a big picture sense. A guy who, as you said, young talented who you could project going forward who does a lot of the things that they like their big guys to do i think they might be a little bit tentative in terms of who you know kind of who hassan whiteside is and just all the things you hear in in talking to people around the league about him and the questions that are raised and the stories that people bring up um illustrating some of some of what makes him such a difficult player to project i I don't get the sense that they would be at the front of the line. I think they'll explore the option. I think they'll certainly probably, I, I, I think they will talk to him and, and his representation about, you know, what the fit might be like and what kind of number may work and, and how that match could be made. But I don't think they're going to be pushing as hard as some other teams will be. Yeah. He's a, he's a very fascinating case for this summer, maybe the most fascinating. And I, I would probably pay to watch him, uh, I interact with Rick Carlisle on a day-to-day basis. I, that would just be that would be a sitcom level uh, interaction. Now, uh, one last thing before I let you run. Um, you know, we're about a month before the trade deadline now. Um, I, I know things are still kind of jumbled up, but you know, as we as we start to get a little bit closer to the middle of February and and the trade deadline, who are some guys and some teams that you're looking at? to kind of see, you know, either, I guess, from both sides. On the seller side, some teams you're waiting to see, are they going to pull the plug and maybe sell off some assets? And on the other side, some teams that you think might be in the market to try to add some pieces to improve. I mean, in terms of the selling teams, New Orleans is at the top of the list for me, just because they were a team that had such high expectations, who expects to be good going forward as soon as possible. And we've seen what happened in terms of their injuries, in terms of some of their defensive issues, uh, some of which are, are personnel-based and some of which have been effort and focus-based uh, all throughout the year. And so there's some some obvious candidates, or at least there, there were some obvious candidates before Eric Gordon's injury in terms of who could be potentially traded away uh, for future assets. And Ryan Anderson is another guy who, you know, they'll certainly be taking calls. They'll certainly be checking around in terms of what they could get for him if things especially on this upcoming homestand for them, uh, don't go particularly well. And so they're a team that if if their next couple of weeks aren't very successful, uh, I think they're going to be exploring their options in terms of what they can do for this year because the book on the playoffs for them uh, might be closed. Uh, so there's certainly one team I would be watching on, on the selling side. On the buying side, I mean, I think the Celtics are, are, are an obvious candidate just for all of the assets they have, the draft picks they can work with. Um, but there are teams that are a little bit are in a little bit of a different position. You know, I think the Celtics are operating from a position of negotiating advantage because they have so many pieces because they can construct so many different kinds of deals. But there are also some teams that are just a little bit desperate to, to take the, to take a little bit of a, a step further from where they are. Maybe teams like the Detroit Pistons, for example, um, maybe a team like Toronto, the Toronto Raptors, if they decide that, that they really want to make a little bit of more of a push from where they they're currently stationed. Um, the Eastern Conference, with how open it is to to be an Eastern Conference finalist, maybe you are only the team that loses the Cavs there, but the fact that you could progress that far in the playoffs with just a little bit more than you have on your roster right now, I think will be attractive to some teams and especially to some ownership groups um, as they try to make their teams more marketable or they try to project some kind of sense of improvement with their franchise, uh, which is all well and good. But 
I think there there is going to be a little bit of, of a pressure in the Eastern Conference to differentiate, maybe not a full-out arms race, but some, some teams that are at least checking into their rosters and seeing what they could afford to give up to make a move. And I guess along those lines, because I agree with you about the East, one final question. Who is the second-best team in the East? One One word answer. I'm going to say the Bulls. That's my answer, too. It's really just a default answer, though, because I have I have no idea who it is. But I, I, I still feel like, for as screwed up as this Bulls team can be, that I'm going to go watch in a bit here, um, I still feel like they have the highest ceiling um, when everything when you know when everything is set but that doesn't mean much because frankly i think you can go from team 2 to 12 in the east and they're all they're all pretty much the same but um rob this has been awesome uh thank you thank you for the time I think it's been great um hopefully people enjoyed your insights i'm sure they will uh, where where can people find you on twitter and besides the gasol piece please plug some other stuff that people can find on si.com yeah you can find me on twitter at rob mahoney and, I mean, you can check SI.com all throughout every week for, for our NBA coverage. I'll have a piece coming up, uh, you know, this Thursday about Will Barton and just kind of the phenomenon there and how surprising that's been uh, and what he means for the Nuggets. Yeah, Barton has been a heck of a story. Um, that's another team we didn't even get to. They, that uh, The Nuggets are, are an interesting story in general right now, given all the, the stuff they've done. So be sure to check that out. Uh, you can find my work at the Washington Post, uh, both in the paper and on our website. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. Please subscribe to the Posting Up podcast on iTunes. Give us a five-star review. Um, special thanks to uh, Mavericks fan uh, Glenn Yoder, the sports digital editor at the Washington Post, for the theme music of the podcast, which is pretty cool. Uh, I know Glenn will be excited to hear your Mavs insights, Rob, so that'll be good. And uh, to everyone listening, thank you, and we'll talk to you again soon.